Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and can look at no wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, musicians. Thank you, Sarah, for reading God's Word. Welcome again to Holy Trinity. I did talk to a parent last week who said that it was so confusing for them to try to find where we were meeting this morning, or actually parking. And uh, one of the things about parking on Lower Wacker Drive is there's so many levels that Google can't really figure it out. Like you could be on, it's like a chocolate cake or something. There's like three or four different levels and you never know where you are. When I was in high school, actually for prom, we came down here and the first time I took a cab in Chicago, they drew, I don't, I can't tell if, I mean, surely a cab driver knows how to get around Lower Wacker Drive, but it was like $40 because the cab driver just kept like circling. But to, to those who are parents, though, you can tell your kids, this is where Batman was filmed, right here, all right? The, the uh, Dark Knight was filmed here, and Batman Begins, I think, were both filmed here. So that's just a little trivia for you this morning. Welcome to Holy Trinity. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in the book of Habakkuk, as we just read, which is some strange material, a little bit. The, the text that we just read feels a little bit strange to us, but uh, if I gave you a title this morning, it would just be this, Learning the Language of Lament. And uh, Americans are sort of notoriously optimistic or have been, generally speaking, and so lament is not always a part of our vocabulary, but it's actually helpful for us to learn from the language of those who are from more marginalized communities, and much of the, uh, much of the book much of the Old Testament is written from the perspective of people who didn't have a home, people who were being persecuted. David, fully 30% of the Psalms are songs of lament. And so it's good for us to learn sort of the minor key while we uh, learn to sing. In 1977 and 1978, a famous tennis athlete named Jimmy Connors. This is way before all of your time, I know. But Jimmy Connors beat John McEnroe four out of four matches. And this is long before Roger Federer or Pete Sampras or others. But over the next 14 years, 
McEnroe and Connors went head-to-head 34 times, and eventually McEnroe beat Connors 24 of those 34 times. But what's astounding about John McEnroe is, as a, as a tennis star and as an athlete, is not really uh, what, what great defense he played or how good he was on his uh, volleys, but what a terrible sport he was. So most of you don't know this because it's before your time, but the guy was, he was a crybaby, literally. Uh, they, he, he was named, in 1981, he was named by one of the London correspondents, Super Brat. And uh, there's a moment when he was uh, in, in Wimbledon when one of the umpires ruled that his serve was out, but he thought he saw like a little bit of chalk dust fly up on his serve. And so he walks over to the umpire after the umpire calls it out and he says, excuse me? And the umpire in a very British and uh, restrained way said, yes, it was out. And he says, you cannot be, this guy's raised in New York. He's like, you cannot be serious, man. You cannot be serious. Google that later and you'll see this little episode. He says, that ball was on the line. Chalk flew up. And then he starts pounding his racket in front of the umpire. And he's like, it was clearly in. He says, everybody in the stadium realizes that it was in. Sorry, I'm going a little wacko here. Uh, he says, you guys are absolute pits of America. Now, in America today, this is like one of our pastimes is to challenge the umpire. In fact, if you ever sit at a hockey game or if you ever sit at a football game, um, it's, it's customary for the fans to point out how blind the referee is. It's customary to, to actually, <laughs> I looked up, there's actually an article about verbal abuse towards uh, referees, like a scientific article about what, what kind of trauma it causes them. I know all of your hearts are bleeding. Possibly to his credit, though, John McEnroe had a strong sense of justice, like right and wrong. He was willing, with all of his frizzy hair, to argue for it, to call the judges on the carpet for it. This is before Dennis Rodman became known as kind of the bad boy of basketball. I I say all that to say this. Sometimes I think Americans pray like we're British, like, dear God, we thank you for this food. Please strengthen us with it. Amen. Like we're worried about offending God. And there's something absolutely audacious about Habakkuk. Like, he seems like he's a little unglued in these two uh, complaints that he gives to God. And I think we have something we can learn from Habakkuk about what I would call the language of lament. The ability to, I'm like, if we can be that chaotic while watching a hockey game or a football game, why not put a little more emotional effort into our relationship with God? That's learning the language of lament. And what I want to do today is just show you um, three parts of lament. And these, these are, this is a particular kind of lament. Maybe some of you, when you were younger, learned um, an acronym for prayer that goes like this, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Acts. I'm going to give you today E. Hold on. M. W. 
which stands for exaltation, mourning, and then waiting. And what happens in, in lament is sometimes those things are reversed. Sometimes the, the person praying starts with mourning and then moves to exaltation. Or sometimes he starts with waiting. But oftentimes those three elements are there. Exaltation, mourning, and waiting. And so here's my challenge for you. Learn greater intimacy and depth with the holy God of the universe by following this kind of frizzy-haired maniac, Habakkuk, as he teaches us to pray. And learn to mourn the injustice of the world. I read a little quote about what tragedy is, and tragedy as, a, as an art object relates to the rage that we have in our hearts because of the grief that we have in our hearts, because of the injustice that's in the world. And lament activates the grief we have in our hearts because of the disappointment and sadness that we have in our hearts, because of our disappointment with the injustice of the world. So let's go to the school of prayer with Habakkuk, and will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that you would teach us again to pray. We admit to you that we hardly know how to pray sometimes. We come to you timid, we come to you hurt, or actually we just, just don't come to you because it's easier. Because we're too confused and broken, we're too, we're too hurt, we're too busy. So Lord, let this uh, prophet teach us to pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Learn to exalt, learn to mourn, and learn to wait. The learn to exalt is in verses 12 to 13. So one of the things that you have to do if you're going to learn to lament is you actually have to know the character of God. Because what happens in lament is it's, I mentioned it last week, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it suing God. Saying, God, you're supposed to be like this, and yet the world is like this. These two things don't match up. Which means you have, to you have to have some kind of knowledge of the character of God. I have a definition of, of lament here that I want to share with you. It's from a great book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vergroep, a Dutch name that I cannot pronounce. But he says, a lament honestly and specifically names a circumstance or situation that's painful, wrong, or unjust. In other words, a circumstance that doesn't align with God's character and therefore doesn't make sense in God's kingdom. And that's what lament does. It says, look, you're supposed to be like this, but the world's like this, so please help me to understand what's going on. And then just a little bit of context for those of you who haven't been here. Last week, Habakkuk, this is complaint two. Last week was complaint one. And complaint one goes like this. This takes place in about 609 to 605 BC and Habakkuk is seeing all of the wickedness in Judah in, in uh, the southern part of Israel and he's saying, God, look at how wicked people are and how much violence there is. And he says, where are you essentially, O God? And then in this section, in verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, he basically says the same thing as, where are you, God? Or in McEnroe's terms, are you serious? 
<laughs> Are you really serious? That's really kind of what he's saying, if you had to summarize verses 12, 13. He says, Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. God has said they're going to die. And he's saying, no, we won't. He says, oh, Lord, you have ordained them, that is, these Babylonians, who are called Chaldeans. You've ordained them as a judgment. Oh, you, O oh rock, have established them for, for reproof. And then he says, look, you're, and this is where it seems very much like challenging the ref. Where are your eyes? Are you sitting on your hands? Why are you silent? You are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This is the cry of everyone who has seen abuse before. Where were you, God, when so-and-so abused so-and-so? Where are you, God, in Austin and Englewood and some of our neighborhoods? where the killing just continues. That's what he's saying. He's saying, also, how can a living God, how could a holy God propose that the solution for violence in Judah is someone more wicked than the people who are going to be punished? How does that even compute? And he, just, he, he mentions several characteristics of God. He says, God, you're an everlasting God. He's, he's older than the earth. Before the mountains were made, before the rivers began to flow, before the sun began to shine, before the stars were in the heavens, before the first rainbow made its colorful arc in the earth, he's saying, God, surely you have something up your sleeve that you could do if you're from everlasting. Not only is he everlasting, but he's holy. He says, are you not holy, O God, O Lord, my holy one? He picks a fight with God and says, we shall not die. The holiness of God has to do with the otherness of God. God's unwillingness to dirty himself with ways that are sinful. It has to do with the purity of God. God, your eyes are purer than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong, is what he says. This means, in part, holiness means, in part, that it's in the character of God to judge evil. It means that those who are responsible for the Holocaust will be judged means that those in, in Afghanistan who rape women will be judged. But it goes deeper. As, uh, as one of the Russian writers, great Russian writers, said that the line between good and evil goes right through the human heart. So he'll judge us also. And Habakkuk knows that. He knows that he's holy. This is not a rhetorical question for him. His complaint is that God isn't judging sin here. So do you hear his pain? Do you hear? I don't know if this seems inappropriate to question God in this way to you. Like, does it seem too audacious to pray this way? 
Shelby Steele, a conservative black economist, in one of his books cries out about what he calls the, the miasma of the inner city where addiction and violence and hopelessness have transformed many inner cities into hearts of darkness. Habakkuk is looking up and he's saying, God, you're eternal and you're holy. And then he gives one more characteristic here. Maybe you can see it in the text. You're a rock. It's a really interesting image for him to throw in at this point. And I, I, frankly, I've been studying this for three weeks and wrestling with why does he mention God's rockness here? It's because God as a rock is a safe place. He's a refuge. And what he's saying is, God, if you're our rock, then how could you possibly be the one who sends wickedness against us if you're the one who's supposed to protect us? In, in Psalm 18, David says, David, after he was running away from Saul and God protects him, writes this psalm and he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. Listen to all the protection nouns, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. And Habakkuk is saying, wait a second. Instead of saving me from my enemy, you're sending the enemy against me. He's the place of protection. Here's what I want you to do with this first point. Learn the character of God is simply be formed by his holiness, his righteousness. Be formed by his eternality. To sit before him and recognize how ancient he is and be formed by his rockness, his protectiveness. Less than 5% of contemporary Christian music is lament. But 30% of the Psalms are lament. And part of what that means is that Americans have kind of distorted theology a little bit to the theology of abundance and blessing and not merely a theology of anguish and angst. And part of what the historic African-American church gives to broader Christianity is the depth of soul of crying out in the midst of oppression in the minor keys. So one, learn the character of God. Exalt the character of God. That's the E. The M is this, mourn the wickedness of culture. No lament is, is uh, complete without mourning. Let me put it this way. God wants your broken heart. God wants your tears. God wants your disorganization. God wants your confusion. God wants your pain. God wants little old you and all the mess you are. Because we're all a mess. Verses 13 to 17, there's a pronoun change between verses 12 to 14 and verses 15 and 17. In verses 12 to 14, Habakkuk is saying, you, 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 you. And then in verses 15 to 17, he says, he, 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 he. In other words, he starts talking about the wicked person. But there's a transition in verse 14 because he says, you, God, made the ones who are being oppressed like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. I don't know if you like to fish or not or if you're good at fish, fishing, good at fish, just fish. Um, 
I've discovered that some people like are actually just really good at fishing and other people are terrible at it. And I discovered this when I was seven years old. My uncle, Alan, who my brother and I were scared of, he's drank a little bit too much on the weekends and he asked us to go fishing and I had never been fishing before and he told us that whoever catches the least fish gets the booby prize. And I got the booby prize that weekend because I didn't catch any fish. My daughter, Anna, on the other hand, unbelievable. She can stand on a dock, put in her hook with a worm, live worm, and out comes a fish. And like two siblings could be right next to her. They put their hooks in. Nope. She has like just this unique ability to like hook the fish and ring, uh, reel them in. And uh, so over the years, I've, I've gotten really good at when she was younger, taking, you know, the hook out of the, the fish's mouth. But I don't know if you ever thought about fishing from a fish's perspective, though, right? Like how, how, I think it's a little bit inhumane. I'm just teasing. But here they are. There's a little hook, and they come swimming. First you trick them, then you hook them, right? And then sometimes it gets caught in their gills or worse yet in their eyeballs and you have to pull it out as gross okay what here's what Habakkuk is saying God think about what fish are like it's like having a, a straight jacket of scales and gills fish have no arms and no legs that's obvious right they have a tail and gills so Habakkuk is saying like when the wicked come against us we're like a fish flopping on a dock we can't do anything he's pointing out the absolute hopelessness and helplessness of those who are oppressed before wickedness. But his real, his real complaint is, God, why would you use these people? He's saying God will be as helpless as a flopping fish on a deck before the Babylonians. He says they'll hook us. They'll gather us in their nets Look at verse 15. It says, he brings them all up with a hook. He drags them with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. This is what he's saying is the Babylonians, if they come, this is his complaint. He's mourning the wickedness of the world. Therefore, he makes sacrifices to his net. What he's really is saying is, where are you? Damn it, God. Where are you? He's saying, where are you when the weak are abused, when the children are killed in the neighborhood, when a child dies in a hospital who's barely three years old? Where are you when a woman is overpowered? He's saying, how does your holiness work with our helplessness? How do those two things compute? How does your immortality work with our impetus? And he, he says... Four quick things about the wicked. They prey on the helpless, verse 15. They drag us with nets and a hook. And then he says that wickedness is brazen and arrogant. It's rejoicing and violence. See, wickedness is one thing, but rejoicing in it is another. And here's what he says is that he gathers them in his dragnet and, rejoice and rejoices in his glad. And this is where there's a difference between foolishness, wisdom, and wickedness, and wickedness actually takes pleasure in doing evil. And that's what he's saying here. 
Not only that, not only is wickedness preying on the helpless, not only is it arrogant, but it's also luxurious. Here's the conundrum. Why do wicked people have the 75-foot yachts? Hmm? Why does the oppressor have a sprawling home somewhere in Hawaii? Verse 16 says, He sacrifices to his net, and he, he makes offerings to his dragnet, and then it says, For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. What Habakkuk is saying is, Why do the wicked prosper? Part of what I wanted to do, I'll just pause for a second. This, this is intense. Uh, lament is cathartic. It's a way to exhume your emotional brokenness before God. Lament is praying your pain. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. I just wondered, have we sanitized God a little bit? Have we sanitized him and like we, oh, I only bring before him the smallest things? Last thing he says is the wicked are merciless. Verse 17. Is he then going to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? And in 2 Kings 25, which this, which the previous prediction of God in verses um, 6 through 11 predicts, what it says is that the king, whose name is Zedekiah, has all of his sons brought before him. This is when Nebuchadnezzar invades uh, Jerusalem. Zedekiah, who's the king at the time, has all of his sons killed in front of him and then his eyes put out. And the reason why they do that is so that the last thing the king will remember, the last thing he saw was his sons being slaughtered. And then it says they bound him in chains and brought him to Babylon. He's caught like a fish. Why do we lament? Because lament can become a framework for our feelings. It can become a, the language for our longings. And so I just want to teach you those two things. One is to learn to exalt God's character, to contrast it with the wickedness of the world. And then two, to mourn the wickedness of this world, but then to wait. And that's the last thing that Habakkuk does in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What Habakkuk does is he climbs this kind of prophetic post where he's going to sit. This is him getting away to some kind of monastery and saying, fine, God, if you are not answering me, then I will continue to listen. And I just want to say to all of you today, don't give up on God. Bring your brokenness to him. Bring, this is called, this series is called A Cry for Renewal. Let the pain that's in your heart and the hurt that's in your heart be transformed and channeled into a cry for renewal. God, renew my heart. God, renew my neighborhood. God, renew this church. Think of the days when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit moved. 
Are you ready for crying out to God in renewal? If our hearts could see God's holiness, if our neighborhoods could see God's redemption, if our hospitals could be infused with just a little bit more of God's love, if the fathers in our midst could see and know the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, this conviction of Habakkuk is we shall not die. And part of what the scripture, part of what Habakkuk waits for is this. He waits for the riddle to be solved. He waits for the riddle of holiness and helplessness to somehow be resolved. And as you know, and I say this to people who are longing for healing, the holiness and the helplessness, the holiness of God and the helplessness of man were merged on the cross. Jesus was as helpless as a straight-jacket-bound straight flopping fish, intentionally. The one who is holy received the holy wrath of God. And the, the lesson is simple. That the holy wrath of God was poured out on Jesus to remove all of your wickedness, all of your unkindness and bitterness, and then to free you to walk in newness of life. So you don't have all the answers. I know, but learn the depth of prayer that Habakkuk has. Learn to cry for him for renewal and thank him that God's holy wrath was poured out on the helpless Jesus to give you entirely new life and to set you free. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Help us to learn the language of lament, to learn to exalt you, to learn to mourn the wickedness of this world, but also to admit that we don't have the answers to, to, uh, to wait for you, to wait upon you. But give us more reality in our prayers, Lord, that kind of audacious willingness to bring your promises and characters before you in contrast with the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.